Welcome to Leader Spotlight. On this podcast, we bring you the stories of leaders, their personal journeys, and we put a spotlight on the inspiring things they are doing. Hello, everyone. I'm Annette Klazowski, your host. I'm an executive coach, a speaker, a facilitator of executive peer groups, which I call the Women's Executive Board, and we also have the Executive Advisory Boards. But on today's episode, we are talking with Bobby Grenrold. He is the CEO and founder of Uversion Bible App. And we're going to talk to him about demystifying the term innovation. So there is a lot about Bobby to know. Um, and I know there's lots of things out on the web where you can hear his story about being at Life Church, the things that he's done, um, Uversion Bible app, just that story in itself and how that's grown. Um, he's a serial entrepreneur, so he started um, in a car dealership, and he kind of worked his way out of that just by being innovative and thinking differently than most people. He also was named to Fast Company's list of the most creative people in business. He has lots of accolades, lots of um, awards, and I'm really looking forward to just talking to Bobby, not Bobby at Life Church or Bobby the U version, but really understanding how he's grown as a leader, what he's learned, and how he can help us really, you know, understand innovation and new ways of thinking about it. And I have my lovely co-host, hello, Maddie Price. Hello, hello. I feel like we need some like soundtrack music or something for the intros. I know. Um, I'm so excited about today's episode. It's going to be really, really great. And for all of our listeners who may not know, um, the Uversion Bible app has been downloaded over 330 million times. So that is absolutely incredible and so crazy. So if you don't have the Bible app, you definitely should have it. It's incredible. Um, and as always, I would love to remind you guys to be following us on Instagram at leader spotlight and keep up with us there. We do a lot of different fun things and we have some really exciting stuff in the works and coming your way. Yes. And if we love to get quotes from you we love to hear what topics you would like to be discussed. If you would like to be a guest on the spot on the leader spotlight, let Addie know. We would love to um, kind of onboard you for that. Uh, there's lots of ways to get involved and and uh, obviously share share the podcast as well. But I know Addie does not expecting this, but um, Addie is very innovative herself. I mean, oh like boy. she has really good ideas, and so. Thinking about innovation, thinking about innovation, what is something that you really have done or that you would kind of say, you know, yeah, I was like thinking in a different place and, and looking forward. You've got a lot of experience for, boy, oh boy. I yeah. Know. You did put me on the spot with this one. You can't see her, but she's tap dancing. I am. I'm <laughs> tap dancing all the way around the whole room right now. Um, you know, I feel like when I think of the term innovation and it's really going to be interesting to listen to this podcast with Bobby. But when I think about the term innovation, I think a lot of times we try and put such an emphasis on it when your everyday life can be innovative in different ways and just the way that you think. And Bobby does a great job of talking to that and explaining that. But for me, I would say that daily, I try and challenge myself with the way that I pursue my goals every day. And so especially for leaders, to think outside the box in the way that you tackle challenges face on. Um, and for me, that looks like a lot of mentorship and a lot of guidance from people around me and just really taking the time to be a listener. And I love to chit chat. I love to make friends, but I try and take a second to really listen to those people around me and really see what guidance I can gain from them. And even though that might not be the stereotypical way that innovation is thought of, that's something that I feel like can help you always kind of level up in your life. Yeah, because I think, um, you know, creative innovation, mm -hmm. I, for me to be in that space, I have to have margin, you know, because we are all scheduled tightly. We've got a lot going on. Maybe you're doing more with less. I can come up with all the cliches, but for me, I have to have margin. And mm -hmm. some of the time I spend in that margin is learning, is just learning what's new, what's out there. What are other people doing? Because you can learn so much from them. Um, but again, you know, I think we are a um, a time centric uh, generation, mm -hmm. and I think COVID taught us a lot about balance and what's really important, which makes margin even harder when it comes to work or what our life's passions are that you know aren't our family or personal. So, 
Um, anyway, we are not going to take any more time. And I'm really looking forward uh, for you guys to hearing from Bobby. So we are going to get to it. Well, welcome, Bobby. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been a minute since we've seen each other. I think actually when I remember seeing you most often is back in your rapping days. <laughs> that brings that back. Was, yeah. <laughs> now you, you probably saw me post rapping days when I still would rap, but my official rapping days are all the way back in high school, you know, through my, oh, wow. I, I kind of, I've, I've been semi-retired since, um, I don't know, 1996 or something, <laughs> 1995. So you might've seen me rap, but it was not, it wouldn't have been in the, uh, the, the official rapping era or my, my, my career. In ended. your glory days. Yeah. You yeah good exactly. though. Like, like when I heard you were going to rap, I thought, Oh, this, this is not going to go well. And then it's like, wow, you're actually really good. <laughs> Did you have an well, official rap name? Rob G was my official Rob rap G. name. Love yep. it. Yep. So. Good. All right. <laughs> so that so the thing I like to do on this podcast is really it's about the story about the leader and kind of how they trekked through their career and what happened. So let's kind of we won't start back in your glory days of rapping, but <laughs> let's kind of start back where you were building companies in the business world. Um, talk a little bit about that. And then, you know, you obviously segued into um ministry and the you version Bible app. And so, you know, we won't go into a lot of that because I know people have heard that story, but how did you start kind of your business career? Sure. Sure. So I, you know, I, I grew up in, and um, my, nobody in my family was an entrepreneur. So I never really had any kind of vocabulary around being an entrepreneur or even necessarily aspirations for it. Um, I was entrepreneurial when I look back at what I did and how I thought, but I just never described it as that. I never thought about that because it wasn't a career path or kind of a way that I had had modeled, you know, for me growing up. That being said, I, I was in college and I took a job at a car dealership in the back office for $6 an hour. Um, and it was a boring, like very simple like kind of trivial task that was being done in the back office. I would get done with the job, have nothing else to do. So I started to listen in on conversations that were going on in the dealership just out of my boredom. And one day there was a group that came into the dealership proposing building a website for the car dealership. And this was in 1995. So it's probably hard for some people to remember. They might not even have been alive at that time, but 1995 was very early on in the days of the internet. And and I didn't think the car dealer or the, the owner was going to go for the proposal, but I walked up to him afterwards and just said, look, if you'll let me build a website for you, I'll do it for a hundred dollars. And he um, just looked at me and I, I, really, I don't, actually don't even know if I'd ever talked to him before that moment. Like, I think I literally the first time I might've ever interacted with me, he's probably like, who's this guy? Um, but he said, yes, he said, sure. You know, and it was, you know, nothing to lose really. And the challenge was I had absolutely no idea how to build a website. There was no <laughs> books on it. I mean, my degree was in finance. I was a study, I was going to be in a, an investment banking was kind of the direction that I was heading career-wise. And so, uh, so I, you know, I had to figure it out. I talked to some friends, people that were kind of in the underground internet back in that day and, <laughs> and figured out how to build a website, proposed to, built the website, but then proposed to them that we should build a car parts and accessories website. Because back in 1995, I felt like that's about the only real opportunity to make money, you know, online mm -hmm. for them. So we built a website called hondaparts.com. And within a few months, they were selling hundreds of thousands of dollars in car parts via this website. And I was getting paid $6 an hour, but I, I loved, I loved what I got to do because it was a challenge and it was interesting and fun and not, not boring. And he called me in his office one day and I, I'd never been summoned to the office. So I wasn't sure if I was in trouble or what. And, and he just said, whatever it is that you plan on doing, I want to invest in it. And that was one of those pivotal moments where I realized that I had this opportunity to become an entrepreneur and I never even thought about it up until that point. So after some time of thinking about it, um, 
I came back to him and had to put together a business proposal. And so, I mean, I had an entrepreneur, I mean, excuse me, I had an investor before I had an idea, basically yeah. is the scenario of how I got yeah. to become an entrepreneur. <laughs> but I, I put together a proposal for a web hosting company and he and one of his car dealer friends became our, our two investors. And that was my entry point in, in, into the space as an entrepreneur. And we, we were really fortunate in the timing. And when we were doing all this, it was 1996 at this point. And um, our first customer was from Germany. And then we had customers in 33 countries and we were still in college full time. So it was one of these college dorm room stories where <laughs> we're, it's 24 seven, middle of the night, tech support to Japan, all kinds of crazy stuff that we learned from it. But, um, but that was the first, the first company and I sold it and started another company after that. But I kind of started on this sort of serial entrepreneur route, um, but it was really uh, Mr. Bailey the, at the car dealership uh, prompting me with the opportunity to, to invest in, in whatever it was I was going to do. That really was the catalyst for me becoming an entrepreneur. That's incredible. Yeah, that's amazing because I, I talk to so many young people and I think there's a pressure for them to know what they're going to do, you know, to be able to go in and major highly competitive, you know, colleges or major or recruiting college of business, maybe recruiting early. And so it's hard to tell people just to walk through doors that open for you, kind of like you did, but you know, right. you, you never know where that will, it, you will end up with those experiences. Mm -hmm. So you also yep. moved, you also had a, a company that worked with the WWE. That's right. And so <laughs> You have all was, the intel. Was, was was this like a passion that you made? So you decided to make. I, I, I already I already see the theme of this. You know, interview. <laughs> it's going to go from rapping to wrestling. And, That's uh, right. And, and, That's and right. Everywhere in between. No. <laughs> yeah. No. When we sold um sold the first company, uh, you know, I I had one of my customers actually became a business partner, and he and I began to to process what we wanted to do next or what you know new new opportunity there was. And this is back in 1998, as I think the time frame. And back then, you know, content and eyeballs, you know, were kind of the thing because advertising mm -hmm. was sort of one of the primary models for dot-com companies and web companies. And so we begin to look at, we thought there's an opportunity to, um, to either build or acquire a large online community and put together sort of a matrix, uh, you know, a set of criteria that we felt like were, would apply to the opportunities we were looking for. We were looking for content, uh, either to purchase a community around content that was what we called second tier content. It wasn't the sort of big primary categories that, that content fit into at the time. Um, examples of content we felt like were in that type of zone were um, dieting, you know, was, mm -hmm. was, was there are communities around dieting, but that wasn't, that was sort of a very sub content of health and broader categories. Um, but we were looking for content that had a high affinity where there was a high community, um, around, uh, you know, a sense of community around it. And we were either going to, like I said, build it or acquire it. We happened to find the largest professional wrestling website, um, that covered the entertainment of professional wrestling and, um, and they, they were also a previous client of mine at the web hosting company. So we actually had a little bit of insight into the traffic and the volume and what they were doing. Um, and it just happened to fit that filter that we were looking for, for that, that opportunity. So we proposed purchasing the website from uh, a group of three people that were up in New York um, and gave them an opportunity to actually take this from being a hobby and be their full-time job, have salaries, come and have an office up in New York City where they operated out of and ran all the creative and and really drove the the, the content and creative for the website. And then we uh, had an office in Oklahoma City and began to look for business opportunities, you know, joint ventures, uh, content um, uh, syndication deals, out, bring, bringing like revenue models to it, all of that with the goal of growing it and flipping it to a public company or somebody that was going to dress up their mm -hmm. IPO to go public. That was, that we sort of saw this window of opportunity um, to do that. So that was what the business model was. And yes, it was centered around pro wrestling. Um, I knew that my life got real interesting when diamond Dallas page, one of the big wrestlers is calling me on my <laughs> cell phone to, 
ask about promoting his new book while he's on the set of some movie that he was doing. And, and I was just like, I, I, I think I've gone far enough um, <laughs> with this, but we, we promoted a, an actual in-person wrestling event using the, the web property mm-hmm. uh, in Philadelphia, which was another crazy story, but we were showing the power of online community because we had all these people that showed up from all over the world. I mean, people that came from London, from, you know, different parts of the US to, to come to Philadelphia for this wrestling event that we had organized. But it's because of the power of the website and the community, you know, the connection that they had with each other. Um, but it was a lot of great experiences, a lot of things I'd like to forget. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, but a few things that um, became catalytic to the things I did later in life uh, that came from those experiences. But we sold it in December of 1999. Um, it was definitely lots of entrepreneurial challenges that we ran into in the middle of it, ran out of cash, had to ask people to work without pay for a short period of time, you know, investor challenges, just lots of things that um, entrepreneurs deal with, but we managed to successfully exit it and sell it to a company that Goldman took public in December of 99. And, um, and so that was the, yeah, the pro wrestling one. You, you're, you're bringing out all the fun stuff. I know, I know. Your research, <laughs> your past is following you. So, is, so after that, um, is that when you got involved with Life Church, or did? Because I know I don't know if you yeah. set out for a while, but I think that's kind of when the next step yeah. happened, right? Yeah, it's it's r- roughly the sequence was that I I started attend my wife and I started attending Life Church while I had that last company I just was talking about the wrestling website. And we had gotten plugged into the church in a way where we were serving every weekend. I played keyboard on the worship team. Again, a bit of a product of my rap days as, as I was a keyboard player and, and, and no, it sounds so eclectic, but anyway, that's, I got involved, uh, very involved in serving at the church. Never did I ever think that what I did in business with technology or online communities, any of that had any application in the church. Um, I always felt like what I learned at church uh, helped me be a better leader, helped me in in the workplace or in the marketplace, but I never thought about the things I did in the marketplace, you know, like connecting it all to the mission of the yeah. church until we sold the company. And my picture was, I think, on the, is the front page of the newspaper, local newspaper about the sale of the company. One of the pastors at the church said, isn't that the guy that plays keyboard on the worship <laughs> team? You know, and they saw the article because I'd never talked about what I did in business and um, went to lunch and, and at lunch uh, he just said, have you ever considered using those skills and what you learned in business and particularly around technology? Have you ever considered using those in the church and maybe even on staff at the church? And I said, no. And he asked if I would consider it. And I said, no, um, because I, I sort of love, I mean, I love my church and I just thought if I did that for a career that it would probably not go so well. And um and I kind of wanted to keep it the way it was, you know, and mm-hmm. plus, plus I was pretty convinced at that point in time that this must be what God designed me to do was start companies and sell them. Cause I'd had two in a row that went well. And, um, and so I just thought maybe this is kind of what I'm designed to do, but, but instead I said, well, what if I just volunteered? So this is early 2000, just on the backside of selling the company. I said, I didn't know you needed other things besides playing keyboard on the worship team. And, <laughs> And uh, so that volunteering effort was involved me helping with a lot of different things. And it went from about 10 hours a week to 20 to 30 to 40. So over the course of a year, a little more than a year from early 2000 to mid 2001, um, I can't got to a place where I just realized, no, this actually is what I'm supposed to do. And I was still doing a few other entrepreneurial things, but we were kind of sitting it out a bit just because of the condition of the market at the time and, and where things were. Um, but, um, but I was not sitting out. I mean, I was engaged at the, at the church, you know, instead. Mm-hmm. So 2001s when I officially came on staff at life church, uh, had no title when I came on, we were small team that were a bunch of generalists and, uh, and now I've been on staff for almost 22 years and would not have thought it would have lasted longer than 22 months at that time. But it was uh, obviously where I'm supposed to be and getting to do the things that I, uh, I, I feel like I'm best equipped to do. 
Well, we're, I, I mean, I love your story, but, you know, today we're going to just talk about the demystifying the term innovation. And so, you know, you have just kind of walked us through a little bit of um, probably how you develop that skill and you would see opportunities and you would have no idea you would learn it and you would go on and then you just keep applying that learning, you know, and it, it's a compounding effect. So talk a little bit about, um, just innovation and how you look at that. Cause you, you, you keep repeating that different industries, um, definitely sure. doing that in the church now with the Bible app. And I am sure you are, um, even though that's what we're seeing, I am sure there are things you're working on today that, um, are innovative and out there, but talk a little bit just about, you know, how you look at innovation and, um, you know, how that difference from somebody just being creative, maybe. Sure. I think um, most of the time that word is, uh, you know, misused and I, I can't, you know, being honest, I'd say I probably misused it at times as well, you know, because I think it becomes almost like a, a filler word to describe new or different or creative or um, current even, you know, when it relates to technology, you know, you're innovative if you're using like the latest tools and the latest technology, um, mm -hmm. that, that descriptors just become very overused the, at, at the core though, for me, innovation really is just about solving problems. Uh, and, and I would also maybe add to that or creating an opportunity, which is, this is basically solving a problem that people didn't know existed. It's still solving a problem, you mm -hmm. know? So it's yeah. like, yeah. sometimes when you create a new opportunity, people realize they have the problem simultaneously with discovering the solution, you know, to the problem. And other yeah. times you're well aware they have the problem, but you just need a, a different approach, you know, to solving that problem. And I, for that's, for me, that's helpful because it keeps us grounded in the problem solving side of it versus new for the sake of new or different for the sake of cool or whatever the driver is that a lot of, I think, organizations, you know, pursue, um, you know, I'm just always like, so what's the problem we're trying to solve? And, and let's make sure that there's an actual application, you know, for, for what we're doing. Now, people may argue with me on the definition, and that's totally fine. It's just the approach of how I think about it. And if you can't distill it down to that problem or, or be able to articulate it, um, then most of the time I'm, I'm just not interested in pursuing the energy around it. I think most people make a mistake, you know, kind of going mm -hmm. that, that route. So I, I mean, there's nothing too profound about that, but that's really how we see it. And that it's just simply a method or approach, a new approach to solving a problem. So one, just to, like speaking to leaders, because I, I think day to day, you know, there's, there's kind of two different places in your brain where you're just executing day to day, you know, you're doing the things that people are paying for you, paying for you have a team. And then there's this space of how do you get into the space of looking forward? Where do I need to innovate? What, you know, do I solve a problem? And how do I think about a problem that hasn't happened? Like, how do you manage that? Because a lot of leaders, I think, have really good intentions, but integrating that into a day-to-day -day practice is really hard. Sure. Well, there's kind of two um, two ways I'd answer that. One is um, different people have different kind of environments or modes, so that the, that I find are conducive to new ideas. Now, I'm an ideator as well. It's one of my strengths. So, I'm having ideas is not a challenging thing for me. I'm kind of wired that way. It's sort of the fruit that my tree produces, you know, like mm -hmm. I just, that's what I, those are the kind of the creative ideas I come up with, but I find that my better ideas or my better thinking happens for me in a certain environment. And it usually is when there's movement or there's motion. Um, I've looked back on it and kind of really analyzed when are those moments that I feel like I have those breakthrough thoughts and I'm, you know, on an airplane or I'm in a car or um, I, uh, I'm just in, in some kind of motion or movement. And I don't know why, I mean, everybody's mm -hmm. wired differently, but that's what it is for me. So if I'm like work, trying to work through something and let's say I'm at my house, I have like a four or 500 foot driveway. I will literally go and walk up and down the driveway. Sometimes I've lost track of time. I've been there for two hours, you know, just going <laughs> back and forth 
but it's a process that lets it just gets me into a mode where I think differently and I can't explain exactly why that is. I'm sure there's some scientific explanation for what that, <laughs> what triggers that. Um, but I, I try to find that environment for some people, it's a quiet space, you know, and, and for some people it needs to be in the morning and not the afternoon, you know, and they have these different rhythms. I think knowing that about yourself is probably the key beginning place to answer the question um, that you asked because it can be different for each person mm -hmm. and it may not be a daily rhythm it might be something that happens on a different cadence than daily but um but it might have to do a lot with the environment it might have to do with the time of day it might have to do with with the people you're with because sometimes um there are people that that have just a certain person or two that are great at being able to help uh, trigger those new ideas now i find that there's two kinds of idea people uh, that this is, I think, important for leaders to, to, to realize or think about, because as a leader, sometimes you feel the pressure that like, it's up to you to generate these blank slate ideas. And, uh, and I find that there, there, there are people that are generally good with the blank slate where just give me the problem and no, nothing to go on. And, and I'll come up with different set of ideas. I'm a blank slate kind of person. You know, I almost prefer the slate to be blank, you know, when it comes to, those ideas. But there are other people I find that are really not good at that at all, but they're really good at taking an idea or a, a, the beginning of an idea and they can expand it. They can, they can improve it. They can um, find new dimensions to it or new aspects to it that hadn't been considered. Um, they can just make it better. And, and so I've found that I need to couple myself even if I have a blank slate idea, I try to, I have a few people I know that I go to that help me make those ideas better, but, but leaders aren't all, you know, might be one or the other. And, um, you know, and there's technically there's a third, there are actually people that I don't think have good ideas at all. Um, it's just not their thing. You know, they're mm -hmm. great at executing, they're great at strategy. They're great at a lot of things, but, and I think as a leader, it is important to understand, I guess it's really three, not two, which of those three categories are sort of how you're wired mm -hmm. because that becomes real important then and making sure you have the team around you and you put the processes in place so that, that those types of innovative approaches or ideas can, can come be developed and, and harnessed in the right way. Um, not to put all the pressure on yourself, you know, that says, okay, I've got to be the one that brings this. I've got to bring everything. I've got to bring all these elements to it. Um, I find that there, it takes a really secure leader to say, I'm comfortable with someone on my team being the one that comes up with the innovative idea that we take and elevate and execute. And my role as the leader is to recognize those ideas, to empower those to take place and to put the resources behind it. And maybe I'm the, the chief champion of the idea and I'm the chief, um, you know, obviously from a leadership perspective, the ones that, you know, the one that can kind of make it happen in terms of empowering it, but I don't necessarily have to be the one that came up with it or the one that owned it. Cause that might not be my skill set. Um, or like I said, I'm maybe you're a blank slate or maybe you're a person that enhances an idea, but either way, recognizing all that is I think also a factor in your question in terms of like how to go about the rhythms of doing it. Um, I, some people would be banging their head against the wall if that if there that wasn't their skill set and they kept trying to force it into their daily rhythm. Yeah. Well, I, and I know you also kind of think that innovation happens inside constraints. So early in your career or early, you know, on at Life Church when you didn't have a lot of resources, was it easier to be innovative? Or now that you have, you know, larger teams and things moving, is it harder for you to find that? Like, what, what's your perspective on that? Way easier to be innovative early on um, than it is now. And because now many of the constraints have to be artificial constraints um, where you have to say, okay, this is the budget or this is the time frame you know, that we have to work on. Time frame sometimes can still be a real legitimate current constraint, but financial resources or even people resources um, we have way more of that now than we had before. And, um, and when you didn't have it before, you had no choice but to innovate, to solve a problem. So early on, um, as an example, you know, we, um, as a church, for example, we built a new building. And when we went into the new building, the building was already full. 
like we could fit every, there's no more room, you know, in the building. And we had one service, two services, three services, you know, on the weekend. And it seemed like three services were the limit to how many services a church could or should have. Um, but there was no other choice or option. We needed to have four, five, six, seven, you know, services. And we've had campuses with as many as 10. Um, there was no reason we couldn't, but we had to come up with what, how we were going to approach that, how from a staffing perspective, you know, it couldn't be done the same way we were doing three or we would, you know, wear everybody thin. Um, but the point is we had to re we had to reuse the building, you know, multiple times in ways that we hadn't seen modeled before. And it wasn't necessarily a profound innovation, but it was just an example of how like our approach instead, we couldn't build another building fast enough. We didn't have the resources to do that. Um, we had more people coming. We had to find a place to put them. You know, so we started to just approach it that way. That led ultimately to us doing church in multiple locations. And we said, you know, at some point you can build a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger building. And then the cost starts to get exponential mm -hmm. and the time it takes to kind of expand. We could do better if we just found smaller venues in multiple locations and, and did it closer to where people you know, live. But to do that and do it effectively, we felt like using video for the, the, the preaching or the teaching element would be a fact, a key factor, you know, and it would enable that to happen. So that sort of drove that innovation, but it was really born out of the fact that we didn't have the money or the time or the resources to solve that problem in a more traditional way, you know, that would have mm -hmm. been solved. Cause had we had that, we probably would have built a 5,000 seat a building and maybe a 10,000 seat building and just sort of kept with what would have been a more, um, a more traditional approach. So it was the speed at which we grow, grew that caused us to have fewer resources, you know, quickly. And I mean, we didn't have the time to, to build those resources up, which created different ideas, different approaches. I found that all throughout, you know, the journey though, is, is most leaders and, and, and there's a tendency even in ourselves to just think, if I just had more resources, I could, I could innovate. Mm -hmm. uh, if I just had a big R&D budget, you know, I could come up with, you know, new ideas. And I feel like just embracing the constraints and the limitations is how it's like a necessary ingredient for innovation. If, if we had the budget, like many companies do, they just buy the solution because yeah. that's yeah. way easier, you know, to do. They, they buy the current solution. Um, yeah. But when you don't have the budget, when you don't have the money, when you don't have the quote, enterprise software or whatever the, you know, the, 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 the need is, uh, you have to come up with different approaches. And I, I try to put constraints today that are more artificial, but time constraints are one that we try to use quite a bit just to force different ideas. You know, one mm -hmm. of the challenges I had to our creative team several years ago is, you know, trying to find different ways we approach our our service and our service structure. And it look, you know, looks, takes a certain similar cadence every week and similar flow. And it's been sort of optimized around a lot of things, but if we wanted to get new ideas and just, just try to drive new ideas, you know, I, I just started saying, okay, well, are, they, they always want to have more time to think about it, to plan for it, to, to work on it. And I'm just like, well, what if we could just get um, the same quality of result, but we spent half the time you know, working on the creative idea and just to sort of force a different, you know, set of issues, you start to prioritize things differently. You start to look mm -hmm. at things that are the most important things. And it just, I don't know, I think constraints are just a helpful tool for creativity that is way overlooked. I mean, we use all those phrases about out of the box thinking and all that stuff that people <laughs> like to use, which is really a disaster. I mean, most of the time when you say that the next idea that comes out of someone's mouth is going to be a terrible idea yeah. because it, it, we actually need those boundaries to sort of help form and shape better ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, and I, I also think uh, we've just been through a couple of years of, um, um, you know, forced change, which, I, I know some people look with a lens that's, you know, maybe negative or pessimistic. I really look at it as a real positive. And so what have you seen? Because I know that you really, you know, believe that teams have to stay postured for change. So you guys mm -hmm. just went through rapid change uh, with COVID and, you know, everything that came with that. What, what did you see that, that you were able to capitalize on or that might be positive just for innovative thinking purposes. Yeah. So in terms of, of COVID, um, 
you know, I think we we all kind of got to witness the global population uh, get pushed up the adoption curve of technology faster than maybe ever before, you know, in human history. Mm-hmm. My my parents, my dad in particular, knows how to play Roblox now. He would <laughs> never, he plays it like literally every day with his grandkids. He never would have ever bothered to learn how to play Roblox, except for the fact that that was the only mechanism of how he could connect with his grandkids for a period of time mm-hmm. due to COVID. And so you watch, and, and they're laggards, my parents are, in terms of adoption. Yeah. And so you watch this kind of window of time that you saw everybody get pushed to the early adopter phase or up the, up the curve, at least. And, you know, I think that that adoption curve is going to go right back to where it was, you know, after COVID, mm-hmm. is, after the post-pandemic, because it's wired into people, you know, like how they adopt new things. But there's a moment right now where the world's population is more current on today's technology than ever before in human history. Like there's more people that are that are in tune with how to use the tools today. And so that's a moment, an opportunity to leverage as we look at it to say, okay, what could we do with that momentum, you know, around that to, um, to kind of expand and think how we think about doing ministry. And we've, you know, we've found that the other thing that we think is true is that that laggard or early adopter, no matter which, you know, once you've gotten familiar with how to use digital tools to engage in community, engage in conversation, yes, we're going to, as human beings, want to reclaim our physical experiences because that's just sort of wired into who we are. Um, but we also now are proficient. And that is created in our in our world, and especially the church side, has created a more ambidextrous you know, community of people that are both right and left-handed, you know, that can, that are familiar with how to use the digital tools and want to engage in the physical context. So we see more and more of this hybrid model of how we do church emerge post COVID. We always had some level of hybrid prior to it, but it's a much more significant level now. And so we, we've had to adopt how we look at data differently, how we handle communication more effectively, the assumptions that we make about behavior what people are doing um, had to kind of adapt to this new reality, but there's great, there's great opportunity in that for us as well, because when you think about even building utilization and the um, our ability to have a connected community, but have more seats available, you know, for people Mm -hmm. to do that, that's kind of a mode. We, We can actually have more, a larger connected community now in the same size building that we had before, um, which was, which is sort of new capacity, you know, we mm-hmm. didn't have, and it's because we've been able to move people, not, we didn't do all the moving, but because the, the, the pandemic, you know, and the environment sort of created that opportunity to move people into this hybrid reality. So, so I do think, um, you know, the premise of change as a posture is I think important for organizations, many leaders, especially in the church context, but this is true for businesses as well. If it's a well-established business or a business has been around for quite some time, um, you know, a new leader comes in and says, okay, we're going to make some really big change, you know, to the organization. Uh, this is what's, this is an existential challenge we have. And we're going to make this huge monumental change. A, a pastor at a church might come in and say, we're going to do this big building project to build a new, you know, a new building. And I know everybody's resistant to it, but I'm going to go through all this energy and all this effort to lead this big change, and we think about change as a noun, like a thing that we're doing, the, mm-hmm. the big change, when we really want to have it more thought of as a verb, you know, like it's, it's, it's a movement, it's a thing that we're, you know, constantly doing, because the moment that that change gets accomplished, most leaders are exhausted from what it took to lead the change, so they stop. You know, mm-hmm. they feel like we just absorbed a big change, we don't need to do any more, we need to take a break. And that instinct is a wrong instinct because in reality, you've just moved this muscle that was atrophied and stiff <laughs> and you just got the mobility back. And if you stop at that point, it's going to stiffen right back up, you know, where it was and you, you got to keep the movement, you know, going, even if it's small changes, it doesn't have to be, you know, these huge, big changes, but that kind of posture of anticipating it, um, I mean, I, at times I've spoken in the past, I used to do this exercise. I haven't done it in many years. Maybe I should, maybe I've, I've gotten too uh, adverse to change, but I would, in the middle of the talk, I would just put a slide up of a chair and I would say, okay, this slide, and just right in the middle of, I mean, mid sentence sometimes, you know, 
this chair means that you need to, to change chairs in the auditorium, in the room you're sitting in. So you said to get up and change chairs. So they would look at me like I'm crazy. I was like, no, I'm serious. I need you to change chairs right now. So they would all stand up and change chairs and then somewhat reluctantly and then go on with the talk. And then another chair slide pops up and I would say, well, we got to change chairs again, you know, and then I do that three times. And what I would highlight with it, I said the first time I did it, you, they were hesitant, resistant, not interested, <laughs> not sure <laughs> if I'm being serious, but then they would do it. You know, but this, the second time they realized this is a thing. And mm -hmm. so they actually left their stuff in their laps after the second time because they got tired of pulling it from under their chairs to move, you know, with them. So they're actually in, in just in two changes, they're actually anticipating change to happen yeah. the third time. And I think that same kind of mindset is what I'm trying to convey to leaders. It's like it doesn't take that many changes to get people anticipating change. But once they do, it sort of really positions your business, your company, your ministry, in a spot where you're going to be much more adaptable because you've built a culture, you know, of that into your team. And it's obviously not as trivial as changing chairs, but, but the, the principle is still the same. How do you motivate your team? Because I think, you know, there is, you know, I truly believe as a leader, if you, you know, are navigating through change and you get from A to Z, but you've completely burn out everybody around you, like that's not healthy either. So how do you just continually motivate people through the change? Yeah, I think it's good. I mean, I do think there's a pace that is important to acknowledge. And I think just, you know, without considering all the variables, you know, a person could mm -hmm. interpret what I was saying as something that's just this blitz level of change that has people, you know, sitting, you know, spent, burnt out, about to die. Um, it has to be sustainable, you know, at times. So much of what I'm describing is far more nuanced and, and consistent and rhythmic than it is extreme. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think some that's, again, some where some leaders are challenged or and, and I even, you know, face these same challenges is you kind of have these big take the hill kind of moments where everybody's motivated, but you have to have a pulse check on how the team's doing, where the team's at. It's just that instead of the, the answer to that being no change, you know, for an extended yeah. period of time, it's sort of adjusting the pace and saying, okay, we've, I know we've been sprinting, you know, to get to here. So let's just kind of move down to a walk, but let's not move to a stop, mm -hmm. you know, and this, and I, and I think that's a little bit of how I would approach it, you know, is kind of reading what that looks like for the team recognizing that we definitely want we want people to be here for the long haul and not um, have people burnt out and facing it, even as ourselves. I mean, we can't sustain, you know, those kinds of paces. So it's finding, I guess, that rhythm. And, and it is responsible of the leader, I think, to really have that pulse check and understand, you know, where the team's at. But um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a very important factor, you know, to consider. Um, I just try to try to keep it from being the blitz stop blitz stop kind of approach because I find that that um, that's not always the healthiest. Yeah, yeah, it's like the anaerobic, right? It's like the <laughs> yeah. sprint. I don't. Do yeah, what's that? The high, high, the hit, the high <laughs> yeah, impact, yeah. high high intensity interval training. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let it, so okay. So I have one more question that I know we're going to kind of move into um, asking you who kind of you put around you um, where you learn and who motivates you. But when's a time that you really felt you've learned maybe one of the biggest leadership lessons of your career? I mean, is there something that happened where you would say, okay, that when I did this or I had this experience, you know, it really helped, you know, kind of mold who I am as a leader? Oh, goodness. Um... There's a lot of them. So I'll try to think of, uh, I would say probably if I had to pick one, um, you know, we did this uh, strengths finder assessment, which I, I don't know if you've done it. You're, uh, you're nodding. Yep. So you have done yep, it. I have done it. Um, we did that. I want to say it was probably 2005 ish, 2004. And, um, and even though the attributes that came from that were not something that was unknown to me, meaning like they, they, when you read, when I read what my top five strengths were, 
they made sense, you know, to me, nothing was a surprise in that regard. It put a vocabulary around it that I just had not had up to that point. Mm -hmm. And that was probably one of the more profound exercises and the principle behind strengths finder, meaning that we should, we should learn to operate out of our strengths instead of trying so hard to shore up our weaknesses as just an overall principle that became foundational for a lot of change that I had in how I led what I did, how I thought of myself uh, that ultimately led to you version and several of the things that we do today, because I was trying so hard up to that point to be really good at like operating things so that it started mm-hmm. and, um, and trying to demonstrate my ability as a young leader to, uh, to show how I was mature. And, and I wasn't just the startup guy that liked to start things and never finish or never, you know, like carry mm-hmm. them on after they're started. Um, and I realized that, no, it really wasn't the case. It was just that my strengths were so oriented around that the beginning process of it, that, um, that that's where I was really at my best. And I figured out that I could still leverage some of those same strengths, even in how we operate it. You know, it's not like they all just had one purpose, but it, but it wasn't shoring up all the things I wasn't good at. You know, that, I mean, that wasn't the, the, the solution. So it's a very freeing thing, you know, for me as a leader. And I end up repositioning a couple of the teams that I was leading around leaders whose strengths kind of matched the stage of those teams mm-hmm. and where they're at. Mm-hmm. The teams did better. The results were better than when I was leading them. And, and I was free to kind of leverage, you know, those gifts and strengths and kind of new opportunities, which is where I should have been, you know, doing mm-hmm. stuff, trying to prove something. So that was probably, I would say just in a general sense, probably one of the best lessons I learned. It wasn't coming from a mistake. Well, it was coming from a mistake I was making, you know, I should say, mm-hmm. but not from a, an, an individual mistake, but more just like the a, a wrong way of thinking, you know, that I had up to that yeah. point. I, I always say awareness um, and we go through seasons and as we move into a different season of life, there's more to be aware of. So I just think as leaders, the awareness is really key and what gets you to a place at the top does not keep you there it's like then you have a whole different skill set of things you know whether it's people and your leading teams or now you have bigger projects more moving parts it's just like you're if you're evolving as a leader it's just you constantly have to be aware of of what what's going on for you personally and how you're interacting with that so true Good. Well, we could go on forever. I, I mean, I would love to ask you lots more questions, but we always end. And I know um, we want to hear kind of your your thoughts on this piece of it that we end with. Yes. Typically at the end of every episode, we always ask our guests to tell us who their four are. So the saying goes that show me your four closest friends or colleagues or mentors, whatever it might be, and I can show you your future. So we are curious, Bobby, who are your four? Good. Um, now these are four kind of through the journey, so they're mm-hmm. not necessarily four active, but, um, one would have to be, um, Steve Bailey, who I mentioned earlier in my story about that. He was the car dealer that inspired me to be an entrepreneur or didn't inspire me, just basically told me I was going to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, he was catalytic because he, he showed me what it was like. He's a Christian businessman that really operated his business out of these, these real strong principles. And I kind of got to watch him up close, um, how he led with integrity uh, in, a, in an industry that didn't always have integrity. Um, and, and then just the fact that he just really believed in a 19-year-old. Uh, enough yeah. to where he was willing to trust me, you know, with his resources to be able to, um, to, to invest in me. And so I just want to be that person for other people because I, because he was that for me. Um, another is, is Craig Rochelle, Pastor Craig Rochelle, who's my pastor and my best friend. Um, this is a, a current one, not a, not an old one, but, um, but he um, demonstrates through how he leads, that he's a very empowering leader, that um, he delegates authority, not just responsibility. And uh, it's unique for people in his position to have what would be CEO or former CEO types that are around him, because it takes a, 
a high level of security and trust, you know, that says, look, I don't just want you to think the way that I think, but I want you to think the way that you think. And I just believe in the way you think, you know, and, and that's, he demonstrates that by how he delegates authority and that responsibility. Another kind of interesting one is, is a person that I only met one time <laughs> and his name is Dr. Galen Robbins. And Dr. Robbins was a, um, a physician that uh, was a cardiologist. And I got asked to meet with him after um, he retired. So he was, I don't know what age he was. He might've been um, his late seventies or early eighties. And he had just retired um, just a few months prior to me meeting with him. He was always interested in technology and he was kind of a forward thinking person in the medical field where he was. So I remember I met with him at his house, which was at kind of a, a golf uh, country club type environment, you know, really nice house. You'd expect somebody that's been a lifelong cardiologist to have a really nice house. Walked into his house. He's sitting in the kitchen. He said, hey, I'm sorry. We haven't got all of our stuff unpacked. We just got back from Dallas. And I said, well, what, what brought you, you know, to Dallas or what were you doing in Dallas? He's like, well, my, my wife and I, we spent the last three months living in an apartment down in Dallas um, because I wanted to uh, learn about a new laser heart procedure. And I was just a little confused. I said, well, Dr. Robbins, I thought you retired. You know, he goes, yeah, we, we retired a few months ago, but I really wanted to learn this laser heart procedure. Um, you know, so we went down to Dallas and, and did that. And I just said, well, are you going to be performing the procedure? Are you still practicing? He's like, oh, no, I'll never perform the procedure. I'm done. I just wanted to learn about it. And I realized that here's someone in their late 70s, early 80s that, um, you know, the very first thing they did when they retired was left... <laughs> their house and all the wealth and everything that they had to go live in an apartment for three months, not just a small trivial thing <laughs> to learn a procedure that they'll never use. And Galen <laughs> Robbins is a lifetime learner. And, and I thought at that moment, I was like, when I'm older, you know, or, when, or, or even right now, I'm going to be a lifetime learner. I want to be like Dr. Galen Robbins. And so that's been a pursuit of mine ever since then is to kind of always keep learning and no matter how accomplished or, or how far you think you've come. So recently the application of that is I wanted to learn how to fly airplanes. And so a couple of years ago, I started doing that. And now I'm an instructor. I fly helicopters, airplanes, seaplanes, you name it. It's kind of become a fun distraction, but Dr. Robbins is who inspires that kind of thinking, you know, in me. And then the last is Mark Green. Um, Mark is, um, uh, you know, a member of the Green family, part of Hobby Lobby that people may be familiar with Mark or certainly his family. And, and Mark is a, is a person who is selfless in the way that he operates and leads. I met Mark um, because a mutual friend connected us around what we were doing with you, with you version and Mark shared some of the things he was working on. And I I served on a board, a not-for-profit board of his, but along the way, he began to see the journey of what, you know, what was happening with the Bible app and new version. And, and he became uh, catalytic in opening so many doors for us, including at the very beginning, we had no permission to, um, to use the Bible text, you know, that we had a license you know, from other providers. Mm -hmm. And so Mark said, I don't really know much about what you're doing, but I know all these people and I'm happy to make connections. So we had Mark, opening doors for us to have meetings and conversations. And, um, and over time, he became a patron of what we do, not because I even asked, but because he asked me, you know, he was like, is there any way we could be a part of accelerating this and be a part of it? And so they've been a part of this journey with us. But that's not the reason that I, I'm inspired by Mart. It's because watching him up close and how he is so selfless and how you know, he has so much and 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 you know god's blessed him with and his family with a lot of resources which if you know their story you know that they don't even own it or they don't view themselves as the owners but the stewards you know of what they have and they give so much away but here's the thing about mart mart heard that or i tell people i said mart would get on an airplane and go anywhere in the world if he thought that it would help me on short notice and he would do it um, willingly and excited because if, if I said, Mart, I need you to go to Turkey, he would go to Turkey. You know, he heard that I was going to be speaking in Australia at an event 
for 10 minutes at, at an arena event in Australia and sharing about Bible translation and challenging people to give to Bible translation. He changed his entire schedule a week later and showed up in Australia just to be there to support me because that's kind of who he is and how he operates. And so that type of selflessness, the type of, of willingness to um, put aside all of the, the, the comforts and things you would expect for someone of, of his prominence and who he is to put himself last, you know, to be there for others is something that Martin inspires me to do. Yeah, they're, they're an amazing family and company. What, what I love about the four, your four, is, um, and I think leaders, you know, need to always be mindful is whether you are, have somebody in your presence for one meeting, you know, like Dr. Robbins, um, maybe you're speaking to a group of, you know, a hundred people, 5,000 people, or you work along somebody, or, you know, you have somebody that you kind of have a joint mission is you can really impact people. And if you really are present and think about it, you can really impact people. And that is what constantly putting those people around or walking through the opportunity, you know, to the opportunity. Because, you know, when somebody wanted to introduce you, you could have been really busy and not had the opportunity, or you could have met Mart and then not really, you know, said, yes, I'll be on your board. And which led to probably a closer relationship. There's, there's just so many decisions leaders make that they don't realize that those are the important things because they seem like the busy, the busyness yep. things. And so I love that. I love that you had kind of represented that. Yeah, well, it's, it's so true. I mean, we have to make time for relationships and sometimes the, as business leaders, the ROI on relationships, you know, isn't always evident or obvious, but I've, I've found that when you invest in people or when you step into those types of things, it just always seems like there's a significant return. You just don't always get to see it up front. And, uh, and so, yeah, those moments, sometimes you're talking in the busyness of life is where you can mm -hmm. miss the moments, but you're, you're absolutely right. That's really, that's really an important factor. It is. Well, thank you, Bobby, for taking time. I know you're, you are busy and well sought out to, speak on all the things you're doing. So thank you for taking time. And we'll put in the um, footnotes of this podcast, the Uversion um, website and how to connect with you. Is there anything else that would be helpful? I think that would be great. We'd love to, if people don't have the Bible app, we'd certainly love for them to have it. Um, it makes an impact in people's lives. And if we didn't believe that, we wouldn't recommend it so strongly. Um, so I, we're it's completely free too. I don't know if we never really talked much about it, but that is definitely uh, what we're passionate about putting in people's hands. So anyway, thank you, Annette, for the opportunity. Yeah. I love being able to share the story and uh, you guys were, were uh, kind to me. Didn't beat me up too bad on the question. No. So that's and, we, and we didn't even ask you to rap. I mean, we could have said, okay, <laughs> there's still time. Yeah. <laughs> there yeah. Is still time. yeah. That, that takes a certain environment, you know, and a certain microphone to, to pull and that off. Well. Back but, of your pants. The, and, yeah. yeah you, lots of you had with all the Intel you had, you could have taken this, this interview a lot of directions, <laughs> but I'm uh I'm grateful that you, that you uh, kept it, kept it clean. So, <laughs> well, and you don't probably know this, but Scott, who's now my husband, when we started dating, I was started going to life church and he was not a believer, didn't even go to church. And he said, well, I'll go. And he went with me a couple of times. He knew you and saw you on stage and then started watching how a business guy you know, was going to church and which led to his whole path of, you know, becoming a Christian and going to church. So you probably don't know that, but I, I didn't, you know, as much as I know, Scott, I did not know that, but your husband also played a key role and um, you probably may be aware of and just, and just coaching me through a tough season in my life that actually kept me connected to the church and had I not had him kind of in my, my world, then I might not have been the Bible app and all that stuff that it went on to be involved in might not have happened too. So he played a key role too. Isn't so it, that, that's just, really cool how kind of we can help each other in those journeys. Yeah, 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 that is. So, well, thank you. We appreciate it. We'll let you get on to your, um, your day, but thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Annette. Appreciate it. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Bobby. We were so excited to have him on. Be sure to keep up with Bobby on Instagram at Bobby G. Wald. That's W-A-L-D. That's his Instagram. And then also keep up with him at the Uversion website. And that is www.uversion.com. Also remember that the Leader Spotlight podcast and blog is dedicated to continual learning and thought partnerships that help us all grow as leaders. If you would like to be featured on our podcast, email addison at fpov.com and you can visit our website, blogmedium.com slash leader spotlight for more great content.